Hey listeners, welcome to our Broken Hearts collaboration. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And together we host the true crime podcast, Buried Motives. We thought it would be fun to get together with some of our amazing podcast friends and bring to all of our listeners a very special collaboration. Every true crime enthusiast knows that love can often end in murder. And so this Valentine's Day, we wanted to bring you cases that have something to do with love gone wrong. It is said that a large number of relationships experience what is referred to as the seven-year itch, a time when tensions run high and couples are put to the test. Together, we will each tell one case to represent one year out of that seven-year itch. We hope you will enjoy this Broken Hearts collaboration as much as we all loved coming together to bring it to you. To start, we have to go to the very beginning, year one, a time when love is new and exciting and you are filled with hope for the future. Year one is when you truly believe that love can conquer all. Our first case is presented by the amazing husband and wife duo, Tina and Rich, from the podcast, Love, Mary Kill. They are a happily married couple who discuss true crimes involving not-so-happily married couples. Hi, I'm Tina. And I'm Rich. And we are the hosts of the podcast, Love, Mary Kill. We've been married for how long? 387? I was thinking 386, but somewhere around After 350, we completely (laughs) lost track. But we've been married for a long time, and we haven't killed each other yet. Not yet. But we tell a lot of stories about people who have killed each other. Yes, but today we're not telling a story about people who have killed each other. Oh, you gave away the spoiler. Oh, sorry. Well, happy Valentine's Day, my 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 darling. Happy my Valentine's love. Day. Thank you. You. Sh- it's true what they say: diamonds are a girl's best friend, <laughs> and you really shouldn't have. I spoil you. you- <laughs> Just kidding, because we're recording this in January, and I I'm sure you'll get. I me feel something like you're lovely. trying to to set me up. <laughs> I do that a lot to you. We're trying to keep this as succinct as possible, so we're going to roll right into snacks. So One thing we like to do is we like to have a snack before we talk about brutal <laughs> murders and crimes. Yeah, it makes us hungry. So today I am unveiling, I made these yesterday, as you know, um, so it's kind of cheating, but King Arthur Flowers Hot Buttered Pretzels, oh, and they're a family okay. favorite. So I good. like to make them on snow days for some reason, so yeah, yeah it's uh, they're a little... It's a little labor intensive, but it, they're they're delicious and they're worth it, right? They sure are. Sometimes yeah. we just do snacks that we buy at the gas station. But <laughs> we sure sometimes do. Maybe one of us actually, does that more than the other one. Yeah, but you yeah. actually are a really great baker, and so you. I'm an okay baker, but uh, and I also made you a little bit of cheese dip. So oh, we are going to try that real quick, and then we'll get back to you on the other side. Well, that was incredibly delicious. Thank they're you for yummy. that. Yeah, they really you should are. try they're them out. They're just so soft and doughy and salty and very similar to an ant ant ants or anti ants. Right, we need to get we need to get rolling. I know. Let's get rolling. All right, we're going to tell you the story of Francis and Anthony Toto. And I am sorry about the spoiler earlier, but this is one of the happier stories that we normally tell. So I think it's really appropriate for Valentine's Day. And to our usual listeners, we already covered this story last year, but I did rewrite it and I found a little bit more information. So here we go. The story of Francis and Anthony Toto. Anthony Toto emigrated to the United States from Italy when he was just 14 years old. He met Francis in the Bronx when they were teenagers. Tony was attracted to Francis immediately because of her sweet, quiet nature and beauty. They married in 1966 and had four children together. Later... They moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Home of the Billy Joel song? I thought you were going to sing it. (laughs) No. (laughs) Classic, though. That's a good song. Tony opened an eponymous pizzeria. 
where he worked super long hours. He worked like every day, many hours a day. Tony had an insatiable appetite for all the things that life has to offer, fun, food, and women. He was fun-loving and the life of the party, but at home, Tony was domineering and abusive. In 1983, Frances had reached her boiling point with the abuse and Tony's wandering eye. Uh Uh-oh. Frances knew that Tony was cheating on her nonstop, and some of the women had even begun to call their family home and ask for him. That's a bad, bad thing. She didn't know how to talk to Tony about their troubles. Some nights he had as many as three dates, quote unquote. Frances never caught him in the act, but several friends warned her about his philandering, and she couldn't ignore it any longer. She was tired of being a laughingstock. With each passing day, Frances's ire rose until it consumed her. Divorce was out of the question for the Catholic Totos. Frances began to plot Tony's murder. Oh, Frances. First, she hired a man to blow up Tony's 1982 Lincoln by wiring a bomb from the distributor to the ignition, but the bomb didn't go off. And we can laugh about this because we know that Tony survived. Tony survived, but it's Pretty horrible, it, it really. Is pretty horrible. I mean, and Frances is really like this nice traditional Catholic woman, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, she's pl- she must have really just reached her boiling point. It's yeah. just crazy, and she didn't just end with one attempt either. Well, okay, what are Mister <laughs> Spoiler today? Holy cow! All right, so this bomb was wired from the distributor to the ignition, but you know, you hire some guy up the street, wasn't a good bomb. It didn't go off. So next, Francis had someone clobber Tony with a baseball bat. I think it was a 16-year-old kid. The kid jumped out of the shrubs in a surprise attack and tried to wallop Tony. But Tony's kind of a big guy, strong guy. He overpowered the, the kid and chased him away. Determined, despite the bungled attacks, on January 26th, 1983, Francis hired Anthony Bruno, a 20-year-old friend of her daughter's, to shoot Tony. He shot Tony with a 25 caliber handgun in the back of his head while he was in bed sleeping. Oh my, that's a rude awakening. <laughs> I'll say. The shot woke him up but did not kill him. Bruno refused to finish the job after learning that Tony had survived. When Tony awoke, he, he said he didn't feel well, not realizing that he had taken a bullet to the back of the head. Oh God. The bullet was lodged in the back of his skull where it actually remains today, but somehow it didn't kill him. Francis told Tony he must have the flu, and she tucked him into bed. She force-fed him homemade chicken noodle soup, but Francis' secret ingredient was a bottle of sleeping pills. Uh, She was determined. The sleeping pill-laden soup didn't kill Tony either, but Francis wasn't ready to give up anytime soon. So then she hired cousins Donald and Ronald Barlip, aged 18 and 19, for $500 to finish the job. On January 28, 1983, the Barlips arrived at the Toto home by taxi. They had a few drinks in the Toto's basement to muster their courage while they formulated a foolproof plan. Ronald planned to shoot Tony in the heart, and Donald would stand nearby <laughs> with a baseball bat to finish Tony off, just in case something went awry. The pair slunk into Tony's bedroom where he slept. Ronald fired the gun, missing Tony's heart by just an inch. He thought Tony was dead, so he didn't require a bashing with the baseball bat after all. The cousins went into the living room to celebrate, but minutes later, Tony walked into the living room, shocking everyone. He said, what's going on? The gunshot woke him up, but he didn't realize that he was the intended target. 
The Barlips quickly fled the house, and an incredulous Francis put Tony back to bed again. Tony must be like just a, a real solid sleeper. <laughs> I can't imagine the fact that she told him like, "Oh, it's just it's the flu. Just go back and rest. You'll you'll be better." It, it's it's hard to believe, but it is all true. Tony was rescued two days later on Super Bowl Sunday, January thirtieth. Someone had informed the police after hearing the Barlips brag about the bungled murder attempts at a local bar. How would you brag about a bungled murder attempt? That's how a lot of criminals get caught. Is <laughs> I know, bragging but they at the bungled bar. it. What do you have to brag about if you bungled it? Fair point. <laughs> The police arrived at the Toto home and asked to see Tony. Francis said he was out of town, but the police forced their way into the house and found Tony in bed, bandaged and bleeding from his wounds. At least she bandaged him up. That's nice. Yeah. The pillow under his head was bloodied. The police told Tony he had been shot, and he said, no, I haven't. (laughs) It wasn't until he was in the hospital that he realized that Francis had tried to kill him. Francis, Anthony Bruno, and the Barlip cousins were all arrested for Tony's attempted murder. Doctors said that the sleeping pills that Francis drugged Tony with actually saved his life by slowing his metabolism, which in turn slowed the bleeding. That's ironic, huh? Isn't that crazy? Tony spent 12 days in the hospital. Despite Francis's attempts to kill Tony, he immediately forgave her and understood that he had driven her to it because he had been a cheating husband and an absent father. Once he was released from the hospital, he went to the bank and took out a $50,000 loan against their home and business to pay Francis's bail. And just for the record, I don't think I would forgive you if you tried to kill me like five times. Well, if you were a philanderer and an absent father right. and you'd been, and he was abusive too. Yeah. He was very adamant that he'd never hit her or punched her, but he said he did push and shove her. Yeah. Which I'm not sure if Francis would corroborate that or not. Tony defended his wife and asked the police to drop the charges against her, but they refused. He pleaded with a judge for leniency. Francis pled guilty to two counts of attempted murder. Francis spent four years in prison, but she talked to Tony every day. The three men who attempted to murder Tony went to prison, too, for about five years each. Hmm. How do you think Tony spent those four years? Um, Other than talking to his wife every day. And- I Taking care of his kids? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. No? What, do you think he was still philandering? I mean, how do you go from having three dates a night to, and your wife is away? Mm, That's a good point. I'm, I, I'm guessing he was not a faithful and no? loyal husband, but oh. maybe they had an agreement. I know he's supposed to be a changed man. Yeah. He claims to be a changed man. But... I would hope that he learned his lesson. Tony appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show in 1986. He wore a shirt that said, shot twice and still love my wife. During the interview, Tony admitted to being less than a perfect husband and making life difficult for Francis. Tony told Oprah, That's when I really began to realize how much I needed her in my life. I realized how much she had done for me during the past 20 years and how much the family really needed her. Sometimes it takes a tragedy to bring a family together. Tony has been able to find the humor in the situation and seems to enjoy the notoriety. While Francis was in prison, Tony made his children his first priority and became a better father. He sold the pizzeria where he had once worked as many as 60 to 70 hours per week, and he got a a 40-hour-a-week job as a printer to spend more time with his family. He enjoyed his time with his children and was glad to have a second chance at fatherhood. The couple happily reunited after Francis' time in jail. He was waiting for her when she was released, and they embraced for 10 minutes. Aw, do you have a tear in your eye? Very touching. Tony said that when Francis makes soup now, he waits for her to eat first. Quote, I was thinking of getting a German Shepherd. 
You never know when you go to sleep who's going to come into your bedroom with a gun or a baseball bat. (sighs) Francis gave a genuine laugh at that. She said she regretted trying to have him killed and never really wanted to hurt him. Tony started practicing karate after the incident and said that it has taught him more self-discipline and confidence. After the Toto's appearance on Oprah, their story caught the attention of Hollywood producers. Tony sold the right to the Toto story to TriStar Pictures for an undisclosed amount. Francis's conviction prohibited her from profiting off of the story. The 1990 movie I Love You to Death starring Kevin Kline and Tracy Ullman is based on the story of Francis and Anthony Toto. River Phoenix, William Hurt, and Keanu Reeves also star. We watched this after we... It's a very good movie. It's it's funny, yeah. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up. (laughs) Tony said he owned a small part of the movie, and a movie poster from the movie hangs on their house today. He said the movie is 99% accurate. I think it's more probably like 80% accurate. (laughs) The movie is, he said, quote, the movie is great. It's fantastic. We love it. And it's a message for everybody. Crime doesn't pay. Cheating doesn't pay. Two very important messages to learn. So The Totos were part of the media blitz and appeared in countless magazines and newspapers. They were interviewed on several high-profile TV shows, Joan Rivers, Johnny Carson, Arsenio Hall, and Geraldo Rivera, to name a few. The media attention was too much for them, however, and the Totos have been out of the public eye since the movie's release, but they're still together. Quote, they constantly call me, and once in a while I break down and tell people that our story is not a funny one. What happened to us is a very serious matter. It almost ruined my life and cost me my life. So I say, look at me. I almost lost everything. Don't do what I did, unquote. (laughs) Tony mounted a makeshift shrine in their home complete with movie posters, newspaper clippings, and movie memorabilia. I should say that Tony... I think liked the attention mm-hmm. and Francis is more of a quiet woman. She's and probably I, a little embarrassed. Too. I think she's totally, yeah. I think she's mortified because she seems like a sweetheart. Yeah. Here's a bit of marriage advice <laughs> from Tony Toto. You might want to write this down and make a needlepoint sampler. Killing someone is not the answer. That's the mistake Fran made. You should do anything but kill him. That's wrong because not only do you ruin yourself, you also ruin your family. You have to think about that, especially if you have children like we did. In my case, I was a very stubborn person. I did not want to listen to her. I took everything for granted. My wife, my marriage, my family. We both did wrong. My problem was I went out with a lot of women. Of course it's wrong, cheating on your spouse. I hope the people who go see the movie will learn something from us. That cheating does not pay. That what Francis did does not pay. This year, the Totos will celebrate 58 years of marriage. 58. And that's where we ended the first time, but... With our newspapers.com subscription, I was able to dig up a few more articles, Mm -hmm. and I learned that in 1992, Tony, then 47, was arrested for (gasps) assault and harassment for a woman named Kim, who was his girlfriend. Oh, no. Tony. He had had punched her in the face, knocking out a tooth. Tony paid for Kim's medical care, and charges against him were dropped when she failed to appear at a court hearing. That really bummed me out. Me too. Because I was like, here's this happy ending. And I was like, oh, Mm. man. So. Bummer. You know, practice what you preach, Tony. (laughs) Yeah, really. We hope you enjoyed this mini episode. Thank you so much to Buried Motives for inviting us to be part of this collaboration. Our very first collaboration. It's very exciting. It is. And it's an honor to be among such great company. If you enjoyed this mini episode, please join us every Monday for a new episode of Love, Mary, Kill. And thank you so much to our regular listeners. You know we love you guys, and I hope we hope you enjoyed this collaboration. And until next time. 
Don't kill your husband. And don't kill your wife. Thank you to Tina and Rich. That was quite the case. I can't believe he stayed with her. 58 years? That is wild. And she was so persistent trying to kill him, too. But persistence is what allowed them to stay together after the fact. And that's how you make it to year two. Year two in our collaboration is represented by a fellow podcaster with whom we've had the pleasure to work with before. Kim Toller is the host of A Million Other Choices. Kim brings to the table a unique perspective. In 2018, Kim's family experienced the tragic loss of her niece at the hands of a dirtbag. Today, she is bringing us a case that you might not have heard of before, but deserves to be told. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim, and this is the murder of Badria Hassan. Badria Hassan's childhood was not a particularly happy one. Orphaned at a young age in Ethiopia, she was raised by her grandmother in poverty. Now, Ethiopia is actually a very interesting country and culture. The story doesn't unfold there, but it is interesting. The name derives from the Greek Ethio, meaning burned, and Pia, meaning face. Now, it may seem not very nice to name a country the land of the burned-faced people, but consider the time period, and Homer considered Ethiopians to be favored by the gods. Only 11% of the over 61 million people living in Ethiopia live in urban areas. Most is not necessarily rural, but nomadic, so they move their livestock based on where the moisture is. There are 82 languages spoken, and English is the most widely spoken of them. Ethiopia is also rumored to be the origins of the Homo erectus, or us humans as it were. Uh, the country was ruled by a monastery until 1974 and today is considered an ethnic federalist government, which I have no idea what that means, but Muslims and Christians have been living together peacefully there for centuries. And still today in Ethiopia, there is a caste system of social groups all tied together by family lineages, a four-tier system with slave descendants at the bottom. However, in urban areas, your social class is determined actually more by your job. But regardless of your job or birth station, women are responsible for child-rearing, cooking, and your basic household stuff, and any educational funds are spent on boys rather than girls. And regardless if you are Christian or Muslim, women are expected to maintain high moral standards and purity in boys. Well, no one ever told us women that life was fair. Uh, an arranged marriage in the early 1990s was still the norm. So when Badria turned 18 in 1987, she was informed that she had been betrothed to a 24-year-old man currently living in Germany named Mohammed Abdo. Her grandmother had actually made this arrangement with Mohammed's parents years before in exchange for them helping her with the cost of raising Badria, but neither Mohammed or Badria were aware until Mohammed had received a telephone call from his parents telling him, uh, letting him know about the, that this deal had been made. Now, Bridgeria, for her part, at the time, she wasn't happy or unhappy about it. She had never really met the man and always knew growing up that one day she would be married to someone that her grandmother picked for her. So she was given her passport, a little bit of money, and sent to live in Italy with some other relatives until Mohammed was done with whatever he was doing in Germany and could come and fetch her. And the plan was to settle in Canada in 1990. And when she got to Italy, Mohammed had come to visit her as often as he could to get to kind of know her. But according to a close friend of hers, she had said, I tried so hard, but I couldn't love him. 
but she married him because she was loyal to her grandmother who only wanted a better life for her. And in 1891, Mohammed had actually moved to Canada, settled in Calgary in a small apartment on 15th Street and 26th Avenue in, in the Beltline area, which at the time would have been a fairly low rent area just outside of downtown, a low rise building with about maybe 10 units in it. Today, rent is probably well over $1,200 a month for a bachelor pad there, but times they do a change. And Badria had given in to pressure from her family and had joined him there in February of 1991. And the rather shy and reserved Badria settled in as best she could and got a job and was taking classes at the Alberta Vocational College. And when on the afternoon of July 10th, 1991, Mohammed dialed 911 to report that he had walked in to find Badria's lifeless body covered with a sheet on their bedroom floor with an electrical cord wrapped around her neck, Suspicion immediately fell to Muhammad, who, although distressed to find a woman dead in his apartment, wasn't what you could call distraught over the loss of his 21-year-old wife, who, let's face it, he barely knew. Uh, There were no signs of forced entry, and it was fairly evident by the scene in the gentle covering of her body that Badria's killer knew her and that she knew him or her. But they really had nothing to tie him to the murder. His fingerprints and hair and fibers were all over the apartment, but he lived there. And the only thing that they found that was maybe a little bit odd was a crumpled piece of paper with the couple's address written on it. And this little piece of paper wasn't written on with the handwriting that they could match to Muhammad. And why would he need to write down his own address? So they headed to the college to talk to her classmates to see if they could find anyone that she had maybe opened up to about this unhappy marriage of hers. And they discovered that on July 10th, she had skipped her English class. And one teacher was told she had a dentist appointment, but a classmate said that she was told that she was taking her nephew to the doctor. So they went back to the couple's apartment and tore it apart looking for anything that they could find. And hidden in the back of her closet was a suitcase. And in this small secondhand suitcase unraveled a completely secret life. And when the suitcase was opened, inside were several letters. There was also a photograph of a young man smiling at the camera. In a couple of the letters, the man talked about her pregnancy. But the autopsy didn't show that she was pregnant. And one of the letters, the man had referred to the little one and had asked if she could give his love to his son. And then there at the bottom of one of the letters were the words, From your love, Mustafa Abdira Muse. Now it turns out that Badria's uncle, Alisho Ahmad, knew Mustafa, but knew him as a man named Ibrahim Mohammed, a landed immigrant from Somalia who he had taken in. Now this was in Toronto in May of 1991, and this man who matched the picture in Badria's suitcase was confronted eight days later by the family that he had been away during Badria's murder. So what was that about? And Mustafa confessed to not being Ibrahim, and that Badria and him were having an affair, and that she loved him. And he didn't kill her, you must believe me, we are going to trace and find whoever this killer is. So none of this sat particularly well with Alisho. But he didn't really know what to do or who to believe. And so on July 22nd, Calgary police used a female undercover Somalian officer to call Alishow's house in Toronto and ask for Mustafa. And when Alishow handed the phone to Mustafa telling him she wants to speak to you, he sat down on the bed and started to shake. And Alishow sat on the floor next to him, comforting him and asking him, like, what's going on? And he said, I killed her. And Alishow asked why. And he said, God said so. 
Don't panic. And then he asked Alishow to get him some cash and a passport because he's got to go. And he went into another room to pray while Alishow supposedly gathered what he needed, like he'd just have random passports lying around in cash. Instead, Alishow called the police. And the two men fought about that. Mustafa finally fled, but he was grabbed by police in an apartment a couple doors down. In his suitcase, they found three passports. So I don't know why he would be asking Badria's uncle to get involved. A fake Italian marriage license and an ultrasound photograph. So let's unpack these suitcases and I'll tell you what happened during this ill-fated arranged marriage and illicit affair. Well, in Italy, Badria met the young and dashing Mustafa who was living with seven other refugees from Somalia and working as a street vendor selling cigarettes and lighters. And the two quickly fell deeply in love despite Badria being betrothed to another man that she didn't know and didn't really love. But she got pregnant in 1990, and Mustafa was thrilled. He wanted her to keep the baby, stay with him, but she knew that her family was counting on her to move to Canada to be with Muhammad, and she'd found herself in quite the pickle. So on one hand, she loves Mustafa very much, feels better suited to be with him, but she had this deep family loyalty to do what her grandmother has ordered and that Muhammad's parents have essentially paid for, as terrible as that sounds. And she wasn't yet officially married to Muhammad yet, so she can't really be pregnant when he shows up the next time from Germany. And she certainly can't have a kid when she's only 20 years old. And Mustafa's telling her it's great, it's going to be fine. She's like, it's not fine. I don't think you realize just how not fine this is. So anyways, in the end, she makes the choice to be loyal to her family. Let's just leave it there. And she deeply loves Mustafa, but she's starting to kind of grow up after this and realize that she has to make some hard decisions. She loves Mustafa, but she's got to go to Canada and she has to make it work. So in February of 1991, she leaves Italy and Mustafa behind and makes this move to Canada. Only when she gets there, she realizes that she's in fact pregnant again. Now Mustafa continues to write her and talk about the baby, uh, so she did at some point let him know that she was pregnant again. Um, Now I don't have access to the letters, but it sounds like at this point, although kind of waffling between wanting to hear from him and just feeling those feelings of love and bonding, um, she's kind of also telling him things that she thinks he wants to hear. Um, I think she's just kind of keeping that long distance thing going for those warm fuzzies, but not because she expects to actually be with him. I mean, he's in Italy, she's in Canada, uh, he's working as a street vendor, and I doubt it's easy to immigrate to Canada without some kind of work history that Canada would actually be looking for. So on July 7th, 1991, Badria actually called Mustafa and told him, you have to stop. You can't call here. I need to focus on my job, my classes, and my marriage. But Mustafa isn't having it. He actually books a one-way ticket to Calgary from Italy the next day under a fake name, which was pre-9-11, so I guess that was easy to do back then. And on the plane, he meets a guy from Somalia and invites him, who invites him to stay with them. And the next morning, this guy wakes up to see Mustafa reading a map of Calgary. Again, that was a thing back in 1991. And the guy offers to drive him wherever he wants to go. But he says, no, it's okay. I'll just take the train. He came back around 3 p.m. that day, but then he took off later, leaving a thank you note on the table and saying he's going back to Toronto. And he had actually gotten a hold of a rather surprised Badria telling her that he wants to see her. You know, Badria's kind of, on one hand, she's happy to hear from him and excited at the possibility of seeing him, but she's also like, oh, 
Like, this is not good. So she gives him her address and skips her class to go home and meet with him and hopefully be able to convince him that it's in fact over between them. Only she answers the door, not the six or seven months pregnant that he was expecting. So enraged, he strangled her with an electric cord, covered her body and fled to Ottawa, where he worked on obtaining a passport so that he could flee the country only he had gotten caught because Badria had held on to the letters in the suitcase of which the investigator Nick Kiska said all her secrets were in there. Her real life was actually in this case, and that's what ultimately put us on the right track. Mustafa Muse was charged and convicted of second-degree murder, having to serve 10 years before being eligible for parole, and 10 years later in 2001 he was paroled and then immediately deported to Somalia. And that was the ill-fated love story of Badria Hassan. Wow, Kim, that one really had a twist that we did not see coming. A whole secret life hidden in a suitcase? It must have been good police work. Absolutely. But such a tragic end for such a young woman. And I feel bad for her arranged husband. He had no idea any of this was going on and was completely blindsided. But that's not very uncommon to sometimes be blindsided in a relationship. By year three you might start to see things with less of a rose-colored lens. Things are not always the way that they seem. Bringing us a case to represent year three is a fun mother-daughter duo, Amanda and Pam, who host the weekly podcast Enmeshed. The cases they cover remind us that some of the most poisonous people can come disguised as family. Hello, Meshers, and welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm her mom, Pam. First order of business, happy Valentine's Day. We hope you all have a great day filled with love, happiness, and of course, zero enmeshment. We've collaborated with six other wonderful true crime podcasts to bring you a day of love gone terribly wrong. We are so excited to be a part of this collaboration and would like to thank Melissa and Christy of Buried Motives for organizing this very special event. All right, well, let's get on with the story, shall we? All right. When Marilyn Reese first laid eyes on Sam Shepard, they were in middle school. Sam was clearly a handsome, talented, and confident athlete as he was shooting hoops in the school gymnasium. Young Marilyn's interest definitely piqued, and she told one of Sam's teammates that she'd like to meet him. Sam gladly introduced himself to the smitten Marilyn, and the rest was history. Or so it seemed. Even though these sweethearts came from opposite beginnings, they maintained their loving relationship throughout their time at Cleveland Heights High School. Let's go back to the beginning. Both Sam and Marilyn were born in the affluent suburb of Cleveland Heights, Ohio in 1923. Marilyn's mother died when she was only six years old and her grieving father sent Marilyn to live with her aunt and uncle, likely traumatizing the poor little girl even further. This was on the opposite side of town from the stable and prominent Shepherd family. Sam's father was a successful doctor when Sam, who was the youngest of three boys, was born. And no doubt with a silver spoon in his mouth. The Shepherds ran a tight ship. The boys grew up under pressure and with clear expectations to become a doctor like their father, regardless of their true passion, which Sam's was sports. When Sam's father cracked down on his grades in high school, 
he still maintained his boyfriend-girlfriend status with Marilyn. Sam was always the most rebellious of the three brothers and possibly a bit narcissistic. When Marilyn graduated a year before him, they stayed together, albeit a long-distance relationship, as she attended Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. When Sam graduated high school a year after Marilyn, their relationship was still going strong. It was only Sam's relationship with his father that was suffering. Sam was offered multiple athletic scholarships, but his father would not hear of it. He insisted Sam carry on the family trade of becoming an osteopathic doctor. In the mid-1940s, after graduation, Sam headed to Hanover College, completing his medical school preparation course in just two years. Throughout Sam's undergraduate career, his dynamic with Marilyn became rocky. Their partnership went through waxing and waning periods, even leading to a temporary breakup, but they always ended up back together to take on their next challenge. At age 20, Sam was accepted to the same medical school that his father and two older brothers had attended, the College of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons in Los Angeles, California. Marilyn moved to Los Angeles to be with him and nudged Sam to do what any dignified man in his shoes should do, propose. Living in sin was a no-no back then, so the two were married on February 21st, 1945. Their wedding was held in a small chapel in Hollywood, California, and they didn't even honeymoon. Sam was simply too busy with his classes. Interestingly, though, Sam had plenty of time for socializing. The couple quickly befriended some of the area's most successful doctors and their wives. Marilyn now had more important business to tend to. She was pregnant with their first child. She was extremely concerned about the pregnancy since her own mother had died while giving birth to Marilyn's younger brother, which seriously traumatized Marilyn at the age of six. She may have been afraid she'd suffer the same fate. Luckily, in May of 1947, Marilyn delivered a healthy baby boy named Samuel Reese Shepard, nicknamed Chip. Marilyn was mostly alone, but hung on to lifelines by returning home to visit family in Cleveland frequently. However, during one of her visits, she received a troubling letter from Sam. He all but admitted to an affair and hinted he wanted a divorce. Marilyn was enraged and went straight to his father, Dr. Richard Shepard, and showed him this letter. His father was in disbelief. This wasn't the boy he raised, and he intended to knock some sense into Sam. Richard ordered Sam back home at once, and when he arrived, his family staged something of a intervention. They forced Sam to admit his indiscretions and talk things out with his wife. The struggling couple agreed to continue on with their marriage with some necessary changes, likely suggested by Marilyn, that Sam would have to leave Los Angeles, he would come home and work for his father. Sam reluctantly agreed after all he obtained the necessary experience as a resident in neurosurgery, so it was time to turn over a new leaf. The Shepherds returned to Cleveland, and Sam began his first job at his father's osteopathic teaching hospital. Shortly thereafter, at home in Cleveland, Marilyn discovered that she was pregnant with their second child. 
In June of 1954, observers would say that Sam and Marilyn seemed more passionate and happy than ever in their now nine-year marriage. Yet, nothing is ever quite as it seems behind closed doors. A storm may very well have been brewing in the Shepherd household on the morning of Saturday, July 3rd, 1954. That day, Sam went off to work at the hospital, and afterwards, Marilyn and Sam had a pleasant evening planned. They had cocktails with their neighbors and friends at their house, followed by a dinner that Marilyn prepared. And by 10.30 p.m., Marilyn was cleaning up, but the night wasn't over yet. Sam sent Chip to bed upstairs before returning to watch the movie Strange Holiday. Their friends would later recall that Marilyn was sitting on Sam's lap, which was the very picture of a happily married couple. By the time the credits rolled, both 30-year-old Sam and 31-year-old Marilyn had dozed off. Sam had fallen asleep downstairs on a daybed, while four-month pregnant Marilyn woke up, walked her guests to the door, and said their goodbyes around 12.30 a.m. Whether Marilyn locked the door behind her or not will forever be shrouded in mystery, as well as the events of that tragic night. You can be certain of one thing. By 5 o'clock a.m. on the morning of July 4, 1954, Marilyn Shepard and her unborn baby were dead. After everything their relationship had endured and hardships overcome, the night of July 3, 1954 would change everything. Dr. Sam Shepard called his neighbor and Bay Village Mayor Spencer Houck at 5.40 a.m. on his landline phone. Sam cried, quote, My God, Spence, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn, unquote. Spence and his wife, Esther, frantically got dressed and drove down the street to the Shepard's house. They walked into disarray. Sam was freaked out, shirtless, and had blood on his pants. It was clear a struggle had taken place. The drawers of Sam's desk were pulled out and his medical bag was turned upside down with equipment spilling out. While Spencer spoke to Sam trying to assess the situation, Esther went upstairs looking for her friend Marilyn. In the bedroom, she found her friend lying face up, half on and half off the bottom of her mattress, with her feet almost touching the floor, nearly unrecognizable. Her clothes had been partially removed, exposing her bloody, severely wounded body. As a result of the brutal violence, Marilyn had lost too much blood. It also appeared as if Marilyn had dragged a blanket over herself in her final moments, and her wounded face was turned towards the door as if she'd been begging for help. Downstairs, Spence called police and was questioning a disoriented Sam. Sam claimed he heard Marilyn cry for help and he tried to make it upstairs, but he was having serious trouble recalling much more. Still, he'd have to try his best to scrape together an account of that night. Shortly after 6 o'clock in the morning, Officer Fred Dranken arrived at the home and he wanted answers. So Sam recounted his story as best as he could remember. It went like this. Early on the morning of July 4th, Sam fell asleep on his living room daybed. Marilyn had been close to him with her friends, Don and Nancy. In the early morning hours, Sam, evidently a deep sleeper, woke up alone in the living room. He heard screams coming from upstairs, so he climbed the steps to figure out what was happening. This is where his memory gets fuzzy. 
Sam claimed to have encountered a white, bushy-haired biped form. His terminology here is a bit unsettling. After all, a white, biped form sounds more like an alien than a person. Court documents have seemingly ruled out the non-human possibility, as Sam never fully clarified what he meant with his description of his attacker. The attacker most likely hit Sam with his fists as soon as he entered the bedroom to check on Marilyn. Sam was knocked out cold, and when he came to, he saw Marilyn on the bed, seemingly dead after he checked for a pulse. Full of adrenaline, Sam hastily checked on Chip, who was thankfully sound asleep. At this point, Sam heard loud noises in the kitchen and flew downstairs to pursue it before chasing the figure with bushy hair and a limp out the kitchen door. The two ran to the nearby beach of Lake Erie, where Sam grappled with the figure before getting knocked out again. Once again, when he woke up, the intruder had vanished. The statement felt vague to police, who needed a lead they could run with. Sam's foggy memory simply didn't seem to have the information they needed. It wasn't hard to understand why, according to his account, since he had been struck hard on the head twice, which could very well have left him concussed. Yeah, concussions can often lead to short-term memory loss. It's tough to say whether Sam was telling the truth about his memory lapse. I mean, memories can become hazy after less intense concussions, too. But people usually recover later with relative clarity. Sam would have had to experience very serious head trauma to completely forget the entire night. We also know that as horrible as Marilyn's murder was, Sam actually did suffer serious injuries himself. But to many of the officers, Sam's vague recollection seemed more like an attempt to withhold self-incriminating information. Could he have inflicted these injuries on himself? Or maybe Marilyn fought back and inflicted defense injuries to Sam. She had multiple wounds to her hands as well. She even had a finger almost torn off. Two homicide detectives were called to the scene, but the case kicked into high gear when county coroner Dr. Samuel Gerber showed up. Dr. Gerber was quite familiar with Dr. Sam Shepard. Dr. Gerber was no fan, though. What's more, Dr. Gerber was also nursing political ambitions and hoped to gain enough popularity to run for mayor of Cleveland. He likely knew that after the grisly murder of Marilyn Shepard, the public would be desperate for answers. It was the perfect opportunity to display his investigative ability. So when Dr. Gerber arrived just before 8 o'clock that morning, he quickly shoved out the bystanders and began his own assessment. He surely wouldn't be guided by the police officers who believed Sam's disorderly desk and medical bag pointed to attempted robbery. He immediately let the crime scene be contaminated, took away Marilyn's body, and concluded that Sam got pissed off that Marilyn was smoking and lost it. And when two young boys found a small green cloth bag of what appeared to be stolen items in the backyard bushes, his theory grew even more viable. It contained Sam's watch, his key ring, which was usually in his pants pocket, and his black onyx class ring, which was cracked. Could this have been staged? But then there was the question of Marilyn's brutal beating. It seemed hard to believe that a simple thief would have beaten her so severely. 
Was she raped? A swab was taken, but wouldn't come in handy until decades later. A second theory was generated, one Coroner Gerber found quite compelling. A rumor spread that Sam was sterile from years of working too close to an x-ray machine, and the baby Marilyn carried belonged to none other than Mayor Spencer Houck. To keep his wife from spilling the secret, Sam offed her, and now the press ran with every rumor they could find, dragging the once-glorified Dr. Shepard right through the mud and putting pressure on the police to drop the burglary-gone-wrong theory. With the botched investigation to pursue the idea that Sam Shepard killed his wife, and within hours of the murder, rookie detectives showed up at the hospital where Sam was being treated for his concussion. They questioned him for only 10 minutes. When Sam hired a lawyer the next day, the situation flared. The press hounding was so bad, they decided to keep his son Chip home from Marilyn's funeral. Sam attended in a wheelchair, and even as he laid flowers on his wife's grave, reporters and photographers scrutinized his every move. One article in the Cleveland newspaper reported that Sam's jaw was visibly swollen. He wore a neck brace, and he couldn't fully open one of his eyes. The article stated that Sam cried and silently mouthed his wife's name as she was lowered into the ground. Sam was still injured and grieving and couldn't catch a break a week later when he returned to work at the hospital. The media claimed his grief had been unauthentic. To make matters worse, the Cleveland Press ran an editorial calling the coroner's office to pull their resources and crack down on Marilyn's murder. Coroner Gerber gladly obliged. He could have easily interviewed his prime suspect in private and left it at that. Instead, he held an inquest and opened the doors to the town. In late July, spectators gathered in a local high school gymnasium as Dr. Gerber dove deep into Sam's shameful past. There was no shortage of scandal. His questions quickly turned to Sam and Marilyn's intimate life, Sam's alleged sterility, and finally his affair with Susan Hayes. Once subpoenaed, Sam was officially interrogated for five and a half hours. Some of Sam's family members tried to speak in his defense. As a matter of fact, they were booed at the end of it all, and Dr. Gerber released his inevitable conclusion. Dr. Samuel Shepard was Marilyn Shepard's killer. Case closed. This official statement allowed the press to abandon any pretext of objectivity and an alarming amount of newspapers openly called for his arrest. Rumors and gossip continued to fly. By July 30, 1954, Cleveland residents received their morning paper with the headline, Why Isn't Sam Shepard in Jail? Under pressure, the detective got a warrant and headed to the Shepard home at about 10.30 p.m. on July 30th. They arrested Sam and charged him with first-degree murder. The fate of the famed doctor-turned-killer now tethered in the hands of the court, which turned out to be a complete and utter three-ring circus. Join us over at Enmeshed to continue this detailed infamous story of love gone fatally wrong, or did it? We will guide you through 70 years of speculation, 
a corrupt trial, a successful appeal, a son fighting to save his father's reputation to this day, and a new viable suspect with the use of DNA. Forensic science will lead to new discoveries and startling evidence. We'll see you there for the conclusion to this tragic love story. Thanks for listening. And remember, some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Thanks, Amanda and Pam, for that super interesting case. It's one that's always fascinated me. But let's move on to year four. Year four is presented to us by two men from Florida who cover a large array of cases. Crimes, Killers, Cults, and Beer, hosted by Bill and Paul, remind us that even though the actions of some dirtbags may make us laugh, there is nothing funny about being betrayed by a loved one. Hey, everybody. My name is Bill. And I'm Paul. And together we are Crimes, Killers, Cults, and Beer. Yeah, we're a true crime comedy podcast, and we've got a very crazy episode for you for this Valentine's Day shindig. And first off, I want to say thank you for varied motives for including us in this. But you can you can find our you can find our feed on at ckcbpodcast.com or wherever you get your your podcast from. Everything we're also on YouTube. Uh, all that's linked. Everything is all the socials. All everything's linked at ckcbpodcast.com. This is kind of a long one, so let's just dive right into it. What do you think, Paul? Oh yes, let's do it. All oh, right. Yeah. We're both from Florida. We're two crazy Florida men drinking beer and talking about true crime, and this is a Florida case. <laughs> and it doesn't get much more Florida than this case. Oh, yeah. Dahlia and Mike DiPolito is who we're covering. You might be familiar with this. But anyway, Dahlia is a woman who was sent to prison because she tried to hire a hitman to kill her new husband, Mike DiPolito. Mike was an ex-con who had served prison time. He had been released on probation for stock fraud. It was a Ponzi scheme run by the mob for selling foreign currency to people and not delivering. In 2002, he was arrested and charged with fraud. He served two years, but he was given 28 years probation. That's a long time. That is a long time. He's now trying to keep his nose clean and live a straight life as a legitimate businessman. Mike was born December 18th, 1970, when he met Dahlia. He was already married, although it wasn't that good of a marriage. His first wife, Maria, was a very good wife who stood stood by Michael even when he went to prison. But, yeah, and I, you, you can't ask for a better wife than that. True. true. But didn't care about that. <laughs> yeah, he, has, he had his heart set somewhere else. Yeah, well, not his heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Dahlia was born... Dahlia Muhammad in New York City on October 18, 1982. When she was 13, her family moved her to Boynton Beach, Florida, and she graduated high school in 2000 and began to try to get a real estate license. And She was moonlighting as a stripper and as an escort. Mike meets Dahlia through, his, through this escort service or escort business. They actually hit it off for real and began spending all their time together. Love at first sight. They fell in love, and Mike quickly divorced Maria. And <laughs> yeah, right. And Maria and and married Delia five days Idiot. after the divorce was final. Ah. <laughs> they married in February 2009, less than a month after Mike told Maria he wanted a divorce. Mike had gotten Delia a twenty five thousand dollar ring, engagement ring, that matter. 
on top to just to top it off. That was the theory. It's not very bright. You don't marry an active escort. Mm-mm. I mean, maybe escort later later on after she's not doing it anymore. No, you, you, but while she's in the business, you you don't do it. Ah, because, yeah, stay away from that. Yeah, does does <laughs> does, a, does a chef want to come home and cook after being yeah. at work all day? Absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't. And read between the lines there. So everything was going well. You know, the couple they were attached at the hip and they were super romantic. They're making out all the time wherever they went. They're leaving love letters to each other. Mike would take her out to expensive restaurants and nightclubs, and he even got her a membership at one of the top gyms in the area. But as it never is, all was not well. One evening, while Mike and Dahlia were out at a restaurant on their way home, Mike is pulled over, and his car was searched. He was suspected of drug trafficking. They found a small amount of cocaine and a pack of cigarettes in his car. This alone would violate his probation, but Mike managed to convince the police it was not his cocaine. And it wasn't. Police received another anonymous tip that, you know, like multiple anonymous tips that Mike was dealing drugs. You know, at one point, the police and Mike's probation officer showed up at his house with a search warrant, and, and they found absolutely nothing. In July of 2009, Mike actually transferred the title of his house to Dahlia to protect himself in case he got arrested. But unbeknownst to Mike, it was his loving bride who was attempting to frame him. Yep. August 5th, 2009, Dahlia was at a gym that morning, as was normal. She got a phone call from the Boynton Beach Police Sergeant, Frank Rancy. He told her she needed to come home immediately because something had happened. What happened? When she got home, she was told that her husband, Mike, Mikey had been murdered. She broke down into hysterics. She was so historical, she couldn't even let the cops get a word historical? in. Historical? Yeah, hysterical and historical. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. Well, yeah. she made history. Oh, sure. yes, she did. News <laughs> crews were outside, and the area was closed off with crime scene tape. Oh, they, they told her that there had been an incident with shots fired, and they had found Michael on the floor dead, shot in the head. But when, when, when police arrived on the scene, the door was open suggesting a robbery had gone wrong. Um, Dahlia was shrieking like a banshee upon hearing the news and they just asked her to sit in one of their cars to compose herself. But all she did was shriek saying that they wanted her husband. This was not a robbery gone wrong, although the police had spun it that way to Dahlia. Police questioned her, asking if anyone had a vendetta against Mike. She said, no. Nah. They started telling her specifics of the crime. At the police station, the police said that, they, that no, there was no sign of forced entry and nothing had been stolen. So the police suggested maybe Mike had led his murderer into the house. And Dahlia bought into this saying Mike wouldn't have let in somebody that he didn't know. So he had to have known the killer. Police threw out another, another theory. Maybe it was one of the people who Mike had scammed. She kept on saying she didn't know for sure, only that it was possible. Um, at this point, police are just trying to get her to slip up. But the whole scene at the house was a setup by the Boynton Beach Police Department, but she wasn't giving up anything. But police, for appearances sake, they put out an APB for a black man, and that's what they told Dahlia. Later in the day, they told Dahlia that they had a suspect in custody, and they actually brought this black man into the interrogation room, and they asked her if she had ever seen him before, but she said no. They told Dahlia 
that they had found a video of the man hashing out plans for Mike's murder. They had made a crappy audio of the man saying it would be a robbery gone bad and he would take care of it the next day. Voice on the recording matched the voice of the suspect in custody. They just needed to interrogate him, hoping that he'd cough up the name of the person who had ordered the hit. But then they told Dahlia that this man was, in fact, not a suspect. It was undercover officer named Witty John, and that there was video that accompanied the audio, and it had caught the, the person who was in the car with the officer. Dahlia doubled down on saying she had no idea who would want Mike dead. The officer then said, then said they knew the, the identity of this person talking to Officer John. It was none other than Dahlia herself saying she was okay with the, she was okay with the plan and to get on with it. Woody John said once the conversation was over, there would be no going back. Dahlia said she was 100% sure wanted this hit to happen. Prior to all this, an ex-boyfriend of Dahlia's, Mohammed Shihad, had come to them with the information with information dahlia had contacted him about hooking up again but you know she wanted more than just sex she wanted muhammad to help her kill mike they told him to call dahlia and to tell her that he could get her in touch with somebody who could help and he did and he said that the hitman would be calling her later that day the supposed hitman was the undercover officer woody john and they they set up a meeting, but prior to that, the car had been bugged with um, audio and video recording equipment. <laughs> yeah, and then she agreed. She agreed to the price and and the plan. John told her to be out of the house by 6 a.m. so she wouldn't be there when he did it. Uh, she went to the gym thinking she had uh, a, a rock-solid alibi. As soon as she left, officers who were staking out the house went inside to stage the scene. The camera crew wasn't wasn't from the news network. <laughs> take a guess, guys. Take a guess. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna, what you gonna do? do? <laughs> what you gonna do when they come for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the TV show. This story aired on the show. But once everything was set up, they called Dahlia and told her to come home. And that's when the screeching reaction happened. No! (laughs) (laughs) She kept on insisting that she was innocent, and at that point um, she was arrested for solicitation of first-degree murder. And she was cuffed, and the police dropped yet another bombshell. Mike walked into the interrogation room. He had been watching the whole time he was shocked and pissed but maintained his composure dahlia freaked out acting like she was glad that he was alive she was just like oh come come here come here mike come here here." (laughs) dahlia was taken to the county jail and the whole thing was filmed on cops the whole time she kept repeating i didn't do anything (laughs) <laughs> I didn't do anything. She must have said that a thousand times. Yeah. This was a national story. It was huge and everybody was eating it up. And they still didn't positively know who had planted the drugs on Mike. Trial began and the possi- the prosecutor said that it was a ruse to get Mike out of the way. And, you know, so that she could have 
his house and all of his money to himself. And this video, the, all the video evidence that they had was played out in court. Yeah. That, and the defense said that there was a lack of motive. She had recently given him $90,000 for the rest, for the restitution. The prosecutors put Mike on the stand. Mike said that she was supposed to combine her money with his and send it to Mike's lawyer. <laughs> what the lawyer say? <laughs> lawyer never got a penny. Dahlia pocketed it. Of course she did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the defense said that the real perpetrators were whoever implanted the the drugs to which the prop, prosecutor said, nope, Dahlia did that too. <laughs> but But then the defense threw the most ridiculous Hail Mary pass of all. This was all orchestrated by Mike because he wanted to be a reality TV star and he used, and they used the cops TV show as evidence. He and Dahlia knew that the TV show had been filming in the area. So they came up with the story as Mike's ticket to stardom. Dahlia, Dahlia played her part perfectly, but Mike called an audible by reporting her to get her the hell out of his life. <laughs> <laughs> Then they brought up the criminal past, saying that Mike was a liar. Both sides rested, and the jury deliberated for just two hours. And the verdict? Guilty! Bum boom Solicitation to commit first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Hmm. She appealed the sentence, and it was changed to arrest pending a new trial. In 2014, an appeals judge said that Dahlia's case had been handled improperly due to the fact that uh, one prospective juror had said that she had read that um, that Dahlia had tried to poison Mike. The trial had a hung jury, and the new date was set. Still on house arrest, she got on prison tender and found a new boyfriend. She got pregnant, and the son, who now lives with the mother. And in 2017, the trial concluded, and she was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Her attorneys were trying to get this case to the Supreme Court, but they were, but the Supreme Court refused to hear it. And attorneys to this day are still clamoring to get her released. And she is at the Lowell Correctional Facility in Ocala, Florida. Mike, later on, you know, is he's trying to keep his nose clean and everything. He's yeah, he hasn't paid back the debt to his victims, so he's still on probation, but he's he's working on it. At least he's alive, and he's found a new wife as well. You know, hopefully he didn't meet her through an escort service. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, um, thanks for listening, and if you want to hear our entire episode, I believe it is episode 90 on our podcast. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, um, Check us out. Thanks for listening. And thanks once again to Buried Motives for having us on for this. And, you know, hopefully we'll see you in the comments on our, on our page. So thank you for listening. See you later. Wow. Dahlia really thought she had everyone fooled. Good thing she didn't. That was a really wild case. Thanks to Bill and Paul for bringing it to us. We hope that you are enjoying our Broken Hearts collaboration thus far. There are still some exciting cases to come, and Brandon Hall knows all about excitement. 
He is a 911 dispatcher and brings a responder's perspective as he breaks down a new 911 call each episode on his podcast, Music City 911. The case Brandon is sharing with us today represents year five. As a 911 dispatcher for the past 24 years, you might imagine that I've heard a lot in my time. Really, just about anything that comes to mind, I've dealt with it before. But every once in a while, a call comes in that boggles the mind. After nearly a quarter of a century with a dispatch headset on, there are still calls that happen that makes you wonder, how do people end up like this? On February 25th, 2020, the communications section of the Winter Park, Florida Police Department received one of those calls. Nine one one. What is the location of your emergency? Four seven four eight France Court, apartment three. Four seven four eight. What's the street name? France F R A N T Z. And the apartment number? Three. Is this a police or medical? My boyfriend is dead. Okay, send the line for the fire department. Do not hang up. Mercy. That's credit no, please don't leave. Four seven four eight France Lane, apartment three. France Court. France Court. Yes. Okay, is this near Mackenzie Drive? I don't know where that is. Okay, It's Hillwood Park Apartments. Okay, four seven four eight France. Correct. Correct. Uh, now tell me exactly what happened there. Uh, my boyfriend and I were playing last night, and mm-hmm. I put him in a case when we were playing. And okay. Like kind of hide-and-seek kind of thing. So I fell asleep, and I woke up, and he was dead in the suitcase. So I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Right, okay, what's your apartment number? Three. Um, I don't know. Apartment three? Yes, like he has, like, Blood coming out of his mouth, and I don't know if like he had like an aneurysm or like, what. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Listen, we're getting help out there too. All right. Okay. Okay. And, and now. Okay. Four. Yeah. Man, listen, we're on our way out there. You're, you're at four zero seven seven one six eight six eight four. Okay. Is he hanging from somewhere or what, ma'am? No. I pulled him out of the suitcase. I tried giving him CPR. Out of the, okay. So he's, uh, he was in a suitcase. Yes, and I fell asleep. Okay, how old is the how old is the boyfriend, ma'am? Forty-two year old man. All right. Okay, we're we're sending we're sending help out there. Sheriff's not straight away out there. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. All right. Listen to me. Okay. That uh, I just need I just need to confirm this one. All right. I understand. I just need to confirm this. Is he is he awake at all? Is he conscious at all? No. He's purple. Right. Is he breathing? No. All right. I need you to get I need you to get him on the floor, flat on his back for me. Okay. I did. I did. I tried giving him CPR. All right. I tried giving him CPR. 
Yeah, okay. Careful, well, 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 nothing happened. He's purple. Okay, listen to me. There's a defibrillator available. I need you to get it for me, okay? What is it? You have an AED, have an AED available? No. All right. Do you write by him now? I'm sorry? You, are you right by him now? Yes. Okay, okay. Lay him flat on his... Okay, ma'am, 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 listen. Uh, so, listen, is he cold and stiff? Yes. Okay. Well, he's okay. not necessarily cold, but he's stiff. He's right, purple. okay. All right, listen to me. I, uh, listen, listen to me. I want you to lay him flat on his back for me on I the did. floor. I did. Removing the pillows, okay. Yes, I did. All right, okay. We're, he's stiff and purple. Right, okay, listen. Okay, man, that's fine. We're, we're still going to do compressions on him, okay? All right? Place the heel of your hand on his breastbone, right in the center of the chest, right between the nipples. Yes. Put your other hand on top of that hand. Baby, I'm telling you. Just okay. look at him, you can tell. Okay. Ah! Please! Okay, he just gurgled. Okay, okay. L listen to me. All right, I want to play. I want you to place the heel of your hand. Uh -huh. Okay, right between, right between his chest, right between his breast bones. Yes. Put, your other, put your other hand on top of that hand. Yes, we I want did. We want to pump his chest to me hard and fast. Go into this twice per second. I'm doing it again. Okay, no, no, just keep on pumping. That's all you need to do for me. Keep on pumping his chest for me. That's, I don't need you to stop and talk okay. or anything. I just want okay. you to count out loud for me, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. This is this is nice. Okay, ma'am, just keep on pumping his chest. That's all you need to do for me, okay? Yes. Come on, please, hurry up. Okay, ma'am, ma'am, they're driving here as fast as they can. Okay, don't stop to say hurry up. Just keep on pumping and counting. I'm, I'm still doing it while I'm pumping you, okay? Okay. Still doing it. All right, just keep, just continue pumping his chest. Count on a second count with you. One, two, three, four, five, Okay, good. 
And you found them in a suitcase, you said? Yes. We were playing hide and seek last night. I fell asleep. I think they're here. All right, just keep on pumping the shit until they take over, okay? I am, I am. Okay. somewhere around the beginning of 2017. After just three months, they moved in together. You would think living together after such a short courtship would mean there's a whole lot of love in that relationship. How did this simple game of hide-and-seek that Sarah claimed to have been playing turn deadly? Medics and police arrived at the scene and quickly determined, despite Sarah's efforts at CPR, that George was too far gone. He was already dead, and likely had been, for several hours. Sarah and George had been drinking together, one of their favorite activities. Somewhere during the night, George managed to fit himself inside of a suitcase. It seems pretty doubtful that this was something like hide-and-seek, though, since, to my knowledge, there's no way to fully zip up a suitcase from the inside. Sarah would have had to have helped zip him in. She said that she went to the bedroom and fell asleep, forgetting that he was in the luggage, only to wake up between 10 and 12 hours later to find him lifeless. While she tried her best to sound very innocent on the phone with police and fire dispatchers, as well as when police started questioning her, the truth was soon found out. Sarah was brought to the police station for further interviews, asking about what had happened and what led up to George's death. They talked about their lengthy problems in the past. Their relationship was not as grand and loving as you would think. George had been arrested three or four separate times for assault on Sarah. She had been arrested for strangling him. When George was found in the suitcase, he had scratches on various parts of his body. When questioned about that, Sarah said that she didn't know how they got there, but also that he was notorious for walking into walls. She also talked about his drinking problems, that she didn't want to drink like him, and that the night of the incident, she didn't have that much to drink. She also mentioned that she had several videos and pictures of him acting horribly. She was questioned further about videos on her phone, asked if she had taken any pictures or video the day of the game of hide and seek. She said she only may have taken a picture of a dog, nothing else. But detectives had already looked at her phone. They knew the truth. She had taken two videos of George when he was in the suitcase. And in these videos, her level of sober doesn't match with her previous statement of not having much to drink. I'll play some of the audio from one of those videos now. Sarah. 
For everything you've done to me. So. For everything you've done to me. So. F*** you. So. F*** you. So. <laughs> Stupid. So. That's my name. Don't wear it up. I can't f***ing breathe, babe. Seriously. Yeah, that's when you do when you choke me. Sarah. 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 <laughs> Sarah, I can't breathe, babe. That's on you. Sarah, I can't breathe. <laughs> it's on you. Sarah. Reel around some. I want to get a video for it extra. Because <laughs> I got this. Sarah. Real or Sarah. Sarah, I can't breathe, babe. Oh. That's what Sarah. I feel like when you chewing on me. Sarah. F*** you. I can't breathe, Sarah. Yeah. You should probably shut the f*** up. Sarah. Sarah had been caught in the middle of her lies. Not only did she make those videos, they were pretty damning. Her level of drunkenness was pretty evident with her slurring of words. Reading from the arrest affidavit, George begged Sarah repeatedly, telling her he could not breathe, and Sarah left him in the suitcase, therefore proving the unlawful killing of George by Sarah's actions that were eminently dangerous and demonstrated a depraved mind without regard for George's life. Her cell phone videos have been released and are available online. She was laughing as George was taking his dying breaths. Regardless of their past violence towards each other, Sarah seemingly zipped herself in a suitcase in the form of prison. She was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, and her trial date has been moved back again to May 13th. If you'd like to hear more about this case, including the police interviews, look up the episode entitled Sarah Boone, released on January 29th. For Music City 911, I'm Brandon, and y'all have a good one. Wow, Brandon, that was a super chilling case. It's fascinating hearing the 911 recordings. It really adds a different element to the case. And listening to Sarah taunt him at the end was so unnerving. And that couple hadn't even spent that much time together. True. They were nowhere near the seven-year itch. No. And that's what we're fast approaching. By year six, you would have hoped you had figured out how to be with your significant other without becoming a pair of uncontrollable dirtbags. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for this next segment. Representing year six is fellow Canadian podcasters Katie and Olivia hosts of Podcast by Proxy. Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian true crime. Welcome. We're live. Even if you cut it out, I have to do it. Uh, so we are talking about the Ken and Barbie killers today, Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo. 
they were active together between December 1990 and April of 1992. Carla and Paul were eventually caught and arrested in 1993 before Carla made what became famously known as the deal with the devil, referencing a plea deal she made with prosecutors in May of 1993. Paul was arrested in February of 1993 for other crimes in the Scarborough, Ontario area, which uh, became known as the Scarborough Rapist Attacks, and was eventually char charged as well with the crimes he and Carla committed together. Uh, so we're going to do a brief overview of this case, and then we actually do have a full two-part series on our main feed, Podcast by Proxy, um, from quite a while ago. I feel like we covered that case, what, in 2021? Yeah. So you might have to do some... Oh, yeah, it was like way, way back. You might have to do some scrolling to get there, but there's a two, a full two-part episode on Paul, his Scarborough rapist stuff, um, Carla and Paul together, but let's go over uh, them briefly now. Ugh, if we have to. If we have to. Carla and Paul met at a convention in October of 1987 when she was 17 and he was 23. They immediately hit it off, according to people who knew them at the time. Um, Paul, as we know now, was very much actively committing crimes in Scarborough already by this point. Um, yeah. Unbeknownst to Carla from what we know. Yeah, I don't think she knew at this point. No, Personally. and she was, from what everyone said, like, incredibly infatuated with him. Oh, she had, like, some big old blinders on. So I'm sure even though there was signs, I she ignored them. Uh, Carla and Paul were engaged by Christmas Eve of 1989. Uh, and around the same time, Paul was becoming obsessed with Carla's little sister, Tammy. Carla went along with a lot of the inappropriate behavior Paul was showing toward her sister Tammy because, like we mentioned, she had she had some love blinders on. Um, she considered Paul to be her king. I was going to say, she like wanted to serve him almost. A hundred percent. And we will talk about that being kind of part of their wedding vows as well when they do eventually get married. Ugh, um, yeah. And, and it, yeah, it definitely speaks to the dynamic in the relationship. Yeah, it's definitely not balanced. No. Paul at this point was starting to ask Carla to dress up in her sister's clothes and actually pretend to be her during uh, their sexual intercourse. And the main reason that he was so into her sister Tammy was because she was a virgin and Carla was not. Yeah. Um, and this was said to be actually like a, a big bone of contention in their relationship. <laughs> like Paul was really pissed that he was not the one to take her virginity. Oh, yeah. He was just... It almost disgusted him. Yeah. Carla was willing to give Paul whatever he wanted to satisfy his needs. And in July of 1990, uh, dressing up as Tammy was just kind of like not doing it anymore for mm -hmm. Paul. So Carla stole Valium from a vet clinic that she worked at. And the two of them served Tammy a spaghetti dinner spiked with Valium. Uh, and when she was unconscious enough... Paul proceeded to rape her before she began waking up, and this was all recorded on videotape by Carla. Mm-hmm. What a monster. Both of them. Mm-hmm. Especially her. Yeah, I mean, like, he's awful, but she was very much a willing participant. Yeah, I don't know how you look yourself in the eyes after you do something like that. 
And it only gets worse. I know. On December 23rd, 1990, the Homolka family hosted a Christmas party, and this presented yet another opportunity for Paul to once again force himself sexually on Tammy without her knowledge. Mm-hmm. Carla snuck more drink, uh, drugs sorry, from the vet clinic, uh, and this time she actually took animal tranquilizers and sedatives and served Tammy alcoholic drinks spiked with halothane, which at the time was a drug that was used to provide general anesthesia. Yeah, it's like still a pretty powerful drug. Like, it's not something you mess with. No. Once other family members had gone to bed or left, the couple invited Tammy to the basement to watch a movie where they both raped Tammy once she became unconscious. Uh, this was also filmed, and the two are seen passing the camera back and forth between each other. As Tammy would begin to wake up, Carla would hold a halothane-soaked cloth over her mouth so that she would, like, inhale it and pass out again. Yeah, she, like, fumigated her. Oh my god. During this encounter, in the early morning hours of December 24th, Tammy began to vomit and she ended up choking on her own vomit because nobody was helping her and she died. Mm-hmm. Carla and Paul then dressed Tammy, carried her to her bedroom, cleaned up the scene, and hid the videotape. 911 was called and Paul told police he had tried to revive Tammy but failed to do so. Uh, And Tammy's death was actually ruled an accident from overindulging in alcohol and the drugs that were in her system went undetected. Yeah, I think if there was a logical reason at the time, they would just kind of let it go and there wasn't, like science wasn't as advanced yet. It was still seven to ten years out in a way. So yeah, I think that's. And, like, honestly, a believable story. She was young. We were partying. She overdrank. She, she choked bed, on her yeah. own vomit. Like, it's not a not believable story. Um, and the police didn't know everything that they would soon find out about Paul yeah. at the time. Tammy actually had a chemical burn, too, on one side of her face from, like, the halothane-soaked cloth. And Carla and Paul told police it was a carpet burn from dragging her to the bedroom. And police at the time did believe this story. Mm-hmm. So, I, and again, like, I don't think nowadays it would ever be believed, but at the time, I think it was believable. Yeah. And if they cleaned up well and done everything to get the place back to what it was, the police would have no reason to believe she ever was anywhere else. Yeah. So Paul seemed very set off by the death of Tammy. This definitely triggered something in him. Um, obsessed with her. Yeah. The couple moved into their own house, so Carla and Paul, on February 1st of 1991. And Paul was really blaming Carla for the death of Tammy, mainly complaining that she was no longer around for him to enjoy sexually. Okay. This is when Carla offers... To find Paul virgins for him to enjoy. So she's recognizing that there's a need there and she's willing to go fill it. Yeah, she's going above and beyond to make sure that he is happy no matter the cost. Yeah. 
The first victim that she brought home was a teenager who she had worked with at the pet store. This girl really idolized Carla. Um, This victim was treated similarly to Tammy using halothane to knock her out while they viciously sexually assaulted her and videotaped it. This victim woke up in the morning sick and sore, not really sure what happened, but she did manage to survive and she got away. In June of 1991, on the 15th, Paul kidnapped 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey on Keller Court in Burlington, Ontario. He brought her back home to the house he and Carla shared, and over a period of a day and a half, Paul and Carla both repeatedly raped Leslie, tortured her, and eventually killed her. This, of course, was all documented on videotape, which would be heavily used in court later. Yes, good. Police eventually pulled seven blocks of concrete containing human remains out of the water at Lake Gibson in St. Catharines, Ontario, which is just under an hour from where she was reported missing. Leslie's braces and dental records are what ended up identifying the remains as hers. Awful. June 29th, 1991, so the same day that Leslie's remains were found in the lake, Carla and Paul got married. Ugh, gross. During their vows, Paul insisted that Carla, Carla's vows include her to, quote, love, a promise to, quote, love, honor, and obey him. Yeah, I was pretty sure the word obey was going to be in there. Yeah, and that was, like, his insistence. Yeah. This is... Ladies, red flags, watch for them. Yeah, the power dynamic in this is wild. However, Carla was, again, very much a willing participant. She wanted to love, honor, and obey him. That is true. She has a dark side, too, and they bonded over their dark side. So I agree. She's not an innocent party in any of this. Fast forward to April 16th, 1992, 15-year-old Kristen French is walking home from Holy Cross Secondary School in St. Catharines, Ontario, when she is approached by Carla and Paul um, at the entrance to a church parking lot. They tell her they need help with directions, and while Kristen is helping Carla, she's attacked from behind by Paul and forced into the car at knife point. Kristen was held captive and kept alive, tortured, humiliated, and abused for three days. Of course, everything that was done to her was videotaped. They eventually murdered her on April 19th, 1992, and her naked body was found in a ditch along Number One Side Road in North Burlington on April 30th of 1992. These people are just horrendous. May of 1992, the police actually exhume Leslie Mahaffey's remains, and this is the first time that the murders are officially linked, and a task force is actually created between the Niagara Police and the Halton Police, because they found bruises on Leslie Mahaffey's body that had similar wounds to the ones found on the body of Kristen French. They, like, bite marks or something, so they were confident they were, like, the same person. Yeah, they. it was enough that they definitely knew it was the same person, and so they created a task force. Crazy. To... Yeah. Well, clearly I'm not right, so tune in to find out what they do find. It's possible, but this it's is possible. just an overview. 
January of 1993, uh, Paul's abuse towards Carla starts to get out of hand and she actually ends up in the hospital because of it. Um, she's admitted to St. Catherine's General on January 6, 1993, after Paul beat her viciously with a flashlight and she ended up with two black eyes. Oh, God. The couple separated at this point. Paul's arrested and charged with assault with a weapon. He's released on bail, and Carla does not return home to the house where they had been living together in Port Dalhousie. I recently was watching something where somebody had two black eyes, and not from cosmetic surgery, from, like, an injury. And the way that their face had swollen, I just feel for anyone that ever happens to, because it looked horrendous. I mean, maybe not Carla, but... February of 1993, the Ontario Green Ribbon Task Force, which is what they had called the task force, of course, um, was closing in on both Paul and Carla with relation to the murders of Leslie and Kristen. Carla is fingerprinted in questions, and detectives were very interested in the Mickey Mouse watch that she had on that very closely resembled the one Kristen French was wearing the day she disappeared. During this questioning, Carla is also told that Paul had been identified as the Scarborough rapist. Um, Carla realizes in this moment that she is going to get caught, and so she immediately obtains a lawyer and began negotiations for a plea bargain in exchange for her testimony against Paul. I don't want to say good for her, like she deserves it because I know she's what she's about to get as a plea deal, but I do think good for her for lawyering up in the sense that She's too naive and has no idea what she's doing, and she has totally let everybody else control her life up until now, specifically mm-hmm. him. So I'm just really glad that she got separate legal counsel and totally. didn't try to be like, I want to do what he does. Yep. No, for sure. I mean, she was pretty over it at this point. I think after he had beat her with the flashlight and she moved out, she was... Yeah, I would be too. Been... Yeah. So in, at this point, Carla tells police she's, she only went along with all of it because she was terrified of Paul. Um, she paints herself as another one of his victims, and she actually requests immunity from prosecution in exchange for the testimony against him, mm-hmm. which, of course, the attorney general did not agree to, but did agree to consider a reduced sentence. Um, and they don't know at this point that they don't actually need her testimony because everything is on videotape. Yeah, the videos were found as they were going, following this. Well, what happened was Paul's lawyer had actually taken the tapes after they were not found when police Yeah, because didn't he reach out and say, like, you have to go find these tapes and kind of Police executed a search warrant of the home that they shared, and they did not find the tapes because of where Paul had hidden them. And so the lawyer actually went in, grabbed the tapes, and kept them for 16 months until basically that lawyer quit and handed all of his evidence and case files to the new lawyer, John Rosen. And John Rosen is the one who fa- who sees these tapes and is like, what the fuck? And takes them to police. Um, but at this point, Carla had already pled guilty to two counts of manslaughter and received yeah. two 10-year sentences to be served concurrently uh, or at the same time for the deaths yeah. of Leslie and Chris, uh, Kristen and an additional two years for her involvement in what was still considered at the time the accidental death of her sister, Tammy. So well, she already point, received a plea bargain. Yeah. 
And at this point, police think she's like kind of like this wounded bird that he's had control over and all this. Like they haven't actually seen the tapes. So they're taking her word at face value, like how manipulative he was and all these things. So it's a very, I think, unique experience for these officers to then watch the real truth and see how bad it is. In total, she would serve 12 years with this plea. And after the tapes came out, there was public outrage. And this plea was coined the deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. Paul was charged with two counts of first degree murder, kidnapping, forcible confinement, aggravated assault for both Leslie and Kristen. And one count of committing indignity to a human body in the case of Leslie Mahaffey. On September 1st, 1995, after eight hours of deliberation, Paul Bernardo is found guilty of all charges against him and sentenced on the 15th to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for 25 years. In November of 1995, he was declared a dangerous offender, um, meaning his likeliness of getting paroled is slim to none, which we have seen in his recent parole hearings. Uh Paul was last up for parole and denied back in June of 2021, as far as I know. Yeah, it was during COVID, so that would make sense. Yeah, he was denied day and full parole. Um, Carla, however, was released from prison in July of 2005 and by all accounts is living a fairly normal life at this point. She's changed her name a few times. And as far as we know, she's currently living in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is our brief overview, if you will, of the Ken and Barbie killers. Again, we have full like two hours worth of this case because there's so many ins and outs. So much detail um, on our main feed. But that is Carla Hamalka and Paul Bernardo. If you liked this brief synopsis and you want to hear more, you can find us on all listening platforms at Podcast by Proxy. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcast by Proxy. And we do take case suggestions for Canadian true crime cases at podcastbyproxy at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Katie and Olivia for bringing us that case that shows really just how wrong love can go. It is still so unbelievable that Carla is among us just walking around free. And sometimes in marriage or relationships, that's all people want is to be free. So for our final case to represent our seven-year itch, we're going to talk about what happens after maybe you've parted ways when the relationship didn't work out. Sometimes when you start over, the grass isn't necessarily greener on the other side. And that's definitely where our case begins. David Alexander Krupa was just an ordinary guy who grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. In 2012, at the age of 35, he was just ending a long-term relationship with the mother of his two children, Amy. They had been together for 10 years, but when given the ultimatum to pony up and give her a ring or else, Dave chose the or else. As Dave settled into his new life of being a single dad, he re-entered the dating pool by putting together some online dating profiles. He wasn't dating to find an exclusive relationship. He had just gotten out of one. What he was really looking for was some casual fun. Light and breezy. (laughs) Which is so interesting to me because he was okay being in a 10-year relationship. 
but just didn't want the quote-unquote commitment. That's right. He didn't want any rings exchanged. On the dating site Plenty of Fish, Dave came across a profile for a woman named Liz. She was an attractive 38-year-old and worked as a housekeeper. Dave was upfront with Liz that it was a casual relationship that he was going after. While a little put off by this at first, Liz went along, knowingly continuing to date and have sex with Dave. But really, she was after something a little bit more permanent. I guess a little Dave, though, for her was better than no Dave. And she thought she could probably change Dave. Exactly. And I wonder how many people will say they're okay with a casual thing, but totally are not. Thinking in the back of their minds, oh, they're going to fall in love with me and it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. It might happen more often than we think. I think so. For Dave, though, in the fall of 2012, he met a new woman, Carrie Farver. The two went out on a date on October 29, 2012, and hit it off enough to head back to his place. Shortly after they arrived, though, Liz showed up unannounced. Oh, man. After a teary display, Carrie bowed out of the awkwardness, telling Dave that it wasn't a big deal, and she got out of Dodge. After dismissing Liz, Dave called Carrie up and apologized, and they hook up again that night. Infatuation is a crazy thing. <laughs> she decided he was worth a second look. Before they get intimate, Carrie makes sure that Dave's not looking for any commitment. Light and breezy is what she's after, too. No drama. A match made in heaven. Uh-huh. He tells her that he's totally on board for that. Over the next two weeks, Dave continues to see both Carrie and Liz, but clearly was favoring Carrie. He was feeling like they were kindred spirits. She was a no-drama kind of girl. Or so it seemed. Not long into the fling with Carrie, she had a job that was close to Dave's house. Dave, being the helpful kind of guy that he was, offered to have Carrie stay at his house for the week of November 12th, 2012. Carrie thought that this was a brilliant plan and arranged for her son Max to stay with her mom and her stepfather for the week. November 12th, day one of the arrangement, everything went according to plan. The two spent the night together and Dave kissed Carrie goodbye the next morning when he left for work around 625. Carrie was already up getting ready when Dave left. She had already called into her office and was just scrolling through Facebook before she left for the day. Dave was stoked by this easy breezy night and the morning that they had had, but that excitement would soon take a dramatic turn. Dave received a text from Carrie at 10 a.m. saying that she thought they should move in together permanently. It seemed that Carrie was now pulling a Liz. She pretended to be easy breezy, but was secretly after a commitment too. Dave shot down the suggestion of living together, and that's when the drama was unleashed. Carrie texted him back saying, quote, fine, I don't ever want to see you again. Go away. I'll date somebody else. I hate you. Dave was dumbfounded and was equally surprised again when he returned home that evening and Carrie had in fact left him along with all of her belongings. When Carrie started sending even more texts two days later telling him that he had ruined her life and that he was a terrible person, Dave felt that he had really dodged a bullet. Carrie was not the person that he had first thought. The messages and the drama would continue to a harassment-type level over the next three years. Dave began to get 50 to 60 emails a day, as well as texts and phone calls or hang-ups from Carrie. She became totally obsessed with him and with anyone that he spent any time with. The messages were bizarre at first. They carried a little bit of a jealous tone, but then over time, they became spiteful and threatening, and they just kept coming. One of them read, my favorite thing to do is stand outside and stare at you. Ooh. Another one said, I will destroy your life and take your happiness. Dave would later recount that on one specific occasion, quote, 
I was sitting in my Lazy Boy with my feet up, watching TV, trying to relax, and it was a nightmare. I would get a text saying, I see you. You're sitting in your chair with your feet propped up, wearing a blue shirt. And all those things would be true. That would be so terrifying. Yes. Some of these messages would include pictures to prove that she was just outside his apartment. I wonder if at this point, if he ever thought, I should have just put a ring on it with Amy. Oh, I'm sure he was thinking that. (laughs) It's just such a leap from I want something easy breezy to let's move in together. She missed a whole step in between of dating and being in a relationship. Oh, it was zero to 60 in no time flat. Yeah. In January of 2013, Dave noticed Carrie's Explorer parked in a parking lot across from his building. The vehicle was parked in a way that gave a perfect view of Dave's apartment. He called the police immediately and they investigated, but there was no signs of Carrie. One time, he was with another woman in bed and a brick was thrown through his window. (laughs) Even his ex, Amy, began to get threatening messages about staying away from Dave and the threats extended to his children. It seemed everyone around him was fair game, and a frequent target for harassment was Liz, who Dave had continued to see on and off. Liz's place was broken into and checks were stolen, and someone spray-painted whore from Dave across the interior of Liz's garage wall. At one point, Dave received an email with a picture attachment from Carrie. The email threatened to kill Liz, and there was a picture of a woman tied up in the trunk of a car. Oh my goodness. Liz and Dave began to bond over their shared experience of being harassed by Carrie. They nicknamed her Crazy Carrie, and together they agreed to help the police find Carrie. Then, in August, Liz's home was set on fire. Luckily, she and her children had not been home that night, but four of her pets died in the blaze. When police investigated, it was clear that the fire had been set intentionally. There were at least six different points of origin. Texts and emails received the night before from Carrie confirmed who was behind the fire. At this point, Liz tapped out and left Dave, refusing to tell him where she was going. No man was worth this. The drama started to die down for a bit during this time, but didn't completely stop for Dave, and it began to take its toll. He gained 30 pounds and began to drink every night. Carrie's odd behavior and the heartache it caused wasn't just reserved for Dave and his love interest. Carrie's own mom, Nancy Rainey, was disturbed by the messages she was receiving from her daughter and her refusal to come home. Nancy had received a message from Carrie saying that she had found a new job in Kansas, and then she just had refused to answer any questions. She had just up and left her son with his grandparents, quit her job, and started a new life. She would occasionally be in contact with her mom through text, but her behavior didn't make any sense. Nancy filed a missing persons report with the sheriff's office in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Despite Nancy's concern for her daughter, the police felt that there wasn't a lot they could do given her past mental history of bipolar disorder and depression. They followed up with Dave, who had been the last person to see her, and he shared with them all the crazy texts and emails that he had been receiving and was completely cooperative with the investigation. He had actually been working with his local police. To the police in Omaha, Nebraska, Carrie was a disturbed stalker. The police in Iowa believed that Carrie's behavior fit the theory of a woman who had gone off her meds and was acting out bizarrely. This theory was further cemented when the detective in Iowa received a text from Carrie asking to be left alone, and further reinforced by Carrie's Facebook posts that told the whole world to essentially leave her alone, she was fine. Her mother and son were heartbroken. Nancy just couldn't accept that this is how her daughter would behave. Then eerily, just days after Carrie's dad had passed away and she hadn't shown up for the funeral, 
only sending an apology for her absence, Nancy had a dream where Carrie's dad told her not to worry that Carrie was with him. For Nancy, this sadly confirmed something that she had already felt, that her daughter was gone. Oh, that would be an awful thing. It would be so chilling. What had happened to Carrie might have never been known, if not for two curious detectives. In April 2015, Carrie's cold missing persons report piqued the interest of Potawatomi County Detective Ryan Avis and Investigator Jim Dottie. The two agreed to take on the missing persons report jointly, but work it from two different angles. One would assume that Carrie was alive and try to find her. The other would assume that she was dead and try to find her. On both sides of the investigation, one name kept coming up again and again, and started to make the investigative team very suspicious. Shanna Golier. Shanna Golier has a very interesting past and a long history of being controlling and manipulative, and she would be the key to the whole investigation. To dig into her history and learn even more about the crazy details of this case, go and listen to our full episode called Something About Dave. But to keep things focused on the current case, just know that after a very suspicious trial in 1999, Shanna had moved away from Battle Creek, Michigan and started a new life going by Liz. I remember my mind being completely blown when Melissa told me that she went by Liz. I did not see this coming. It was definitely a plot twist. And police were just as shocked. They learned that Liz had a distinct pattern with relationships, and the investigative team were able to connect Liz or Shayna to many of the things that Carrie had been supposedly doing. I assume feeling the heat, Liz tried to deflect attention onto Dave's ex-wife, Amy. For Liz, Amy was an easy target to choose because Dave had just moved closer to her for the sake of his children, trying to escape the drama. Liz tried to tell the police that she believed it was Amy that had been impersonating Carrie and threatening her and Dave, and she wanted the police to arrest her. When they were slow to react, Liz shot herself in the thigh to try and convince them of the danger. (laughs) So wild to me. This case honestly could play out like a movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Police weren't fooled, however. The tract of the wound made it pretty clear that she had shot herself. But they do pretend to believe her and asked her to allow them to download the contents of her phone so that they could review the messages that Amy had been sending her, including all of the deleted content. It was a gold mine. It was estimated that she spent 40 to 50 hours a week impersonating Carrie. They found photos of Carrie's Ford Explorer date-stamped about a month before the car was reported by Dave, and long after Carrie had disappeared. They also found a photo of herself tied up in a trunk of a car, and a video of her walking around the outside of Dave's apartment. Investigators were able to tie a single fingerprint found in Carrie's vehicle to Liz. Through some questionable tactics, police trap Liz into giving them details of Carrie's death. Pretending to be Amy, confessing, Liz tells police in an email that Carrie was stabbed three to four times in the stomach and the chest while in her car. The email gives away details that had never been released to the public. On December 22, 2016, Shanna Golier was apprehended by the Nebraska law enforcement. She was charged with the first-degree murder of Carrie Farver. After the 10-day trial, the judge returned a guilty verdict on May 24, 2017. Liz was convicted and sentenced to life behind bars and an additional 18 to 20 years for arson. Because she set her own house on fire. Exactly. Liz is now serving her life sentence in Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. While in prison, Liz has shown no remorse and continues to say that she had nothing to do with Carrie's death. But she is still all about the dramatics. Threatening emails that were sent to her about her children were determined to be fake. And according to other inmates, they claim she insists on them calling her Carrie. 
No way. Mm-hmm. And that is the case of the callous, attention-seeking, dramatic dirtbag, Shanna Liz Golier. I remember that being such an intense case. Listeners, I do recommend that you go to our feed and listen to the full coverage that Melissa did covering this particular case. There are so many more crazy things that she did that we just don't have time to share with you today. But we really appreciate everyone joining us in this Broken Hearts collaboration. We'd like to thank all of the podcasts that joined us. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll take some time to check out everybody's podcast. Until next time. See ya. Bye. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.